0: The answer to 99 out of 100 questions is money. The pursuit of money consumes the largest portion of our lives as we enter the workforce around the age of 18 and anticipate work's end to come when we hit 65. An American man currently has a life expectancy of 76, meaning that we work for 47 years of our life in order to enjoy the 29 years that we have off. Of course, for a number of those years, perhaps on both ends, we have trouble wiping our own butts. This means that we allow the pursuit of money to eat up the best years of our lives. The Egyptians didn't have the old adage that you can't take it with you when you go, and thus hoarded their money within their tombs, as they believed that they could use it to buy happiness within the afterlife. Hence, so many of their tombs were broken into, as robbers search for a shortcut from the past towards securing their own future. Money guides most historical turning points. The U.S. rebelled against King George III in large part because of the economic system at the time, as mercantilism never offered the colonies a pathway to self-sufficiency. In simpler terms, the Founding Fathers were sick of living in their parents' basement. The Europeans ravaged the globe, searching for the three Gs, gold, glory, and God. But whenever these three goals came in conflict, it was always gold that was pursued above all else. For instance, Francisco Pizarro, the Spanish conquistador who faced off against the Incans, clearly sought glory. After all, he faced an empire of 100,000, with just 140 of his own. Upon the arrival of his opponent, the Conquistador sent out his friar to offer up the chance to convert to Christianity, thereby embracing the glory of God. In exchange, the indigenous leader had brought furniture made of gold and silver, carried on a litter filled to the brim with emeralds. When the Incan discarded the useless Bible, it was written in Spanish and lacked pictures, The Spaniards threw away their understanding that their God had declared that thou shalt not kill and proceeded with a slaughter for the ages. Religion has attempted to fight back against gold. The entire New Testament can be read as a rejection of modern economic theory, devoting entire chapters to Jesus' rants against banks that required interest payments. It isn't just the Christians either, as every established faith attempts to answer the inevitable questions that swirl around money. Who has it? Who wants it? And how do I get it? The Jewish faith believes that it is God who gives you your wealth. Far from being the root of all evil, the Buddhists declare money to be a neutral force in the world, enabling you to either pursue good or evil. Hinduism, on the other hand, essentially tells you that you have no chance of escaping the pyramid of life and breaking reincarnation cycle if you don't have the means to engage in serious works of charity. In that faith's reasoning, your time spent helping others is wonderful, but money often acts as a multiplier, allowing you to accumulate points to reach moksha. The Islamic Hadith, the secondary religious text written by the Prophet Muhammad, gives the most graphic metaphor regarding wealth, telling us that whoever is made wealthy by Allah and does not contribute enough of his money to charity, then on the day of resurrection his wealth will be made into a bald-headed poisonous male snake with two black spots over the eyes. The snake will encircle his neck, and bite his cheeks and say, I am your wealth, I am your treasure. For all of the importance we place upon it, however, wealth is merely a societal construct. The money that we have in our bank accounts are merely imaginary numbers on a ledger within a supercomputer. Of course, this doesn't stop the Catholic Church from maintaining vast stores of treasures, despite the fact that it teaches its followers that the poor on earth are the rich in heaven. Some accounts have the Catholic Church's assets valued at more than $30 billion. Per capita, the Church of Latter-day Saints, more commonly referred to as the Mormon faith, is even richer than that. Profitability thus seems to be important to Christian faiths, despite Matthew proclaiming that you cannot serve both God and money, as well as the gem that it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. History is likewise obsessed with wealth, often elevating the world's richest men and women onto a pedestal for all to behold. From Robin Leach's Lifestyles of the Rich and Famous to the World of the Kardashians, the rest of us regularly tune in to see how the top 1% live. Caesar, Cleopatra, Alexander, Napoleon, Catherine, Elizabeth, and Anne have all had their reputations enhanced by their wealth. The obsession has been with us from the very start, as the world's oldest documents aren't a collection of the deeds of elite early men and women, but rather the recording of tax payments and the accumulation of debts and the ownership of property. Historian Yuval Noah Harari goes so far as to argue that the main impetus for mankind's development of writing was so that he could better keep track of the economic measures of our societies. Even one of humanity's oldest sayings gets lawyered by money. As the fictional character of Marshall Erickson pointed out when his friend Barney Stinson repeated the belief on How I Met Your Mother that prostitution is the world's oldest profession. In rebuttal, Marshall poses the thought, if true, How did the prostitute get paid? This obsession with wealth is despite everyone knowing that money can't buy you happiness, despite the fact that it can buy you a jet ski, which in turn probably would make you happy. Psychology today reveals that the old adage isn't quite right, as money can buy you happiness, but only up to a certain point. Surprisingly, that point is reached at $75,000, a salary that will buy your way into the lower portions of the American middle class. It is also the amount of money that will allow you to purchase daily necessities without penny-pinching. After that point, however, it eats into one's time to pursue tasks that make us happy. You may be able to afford the jet ski, but do you have enough vacation days stored up to go and enjoy it? Marketers will of course answer that question in affirmation, but they only make money if you spend your money, creating a dangerous, never-ending zero-sum game. It is in itself a part of a larger game being played by capitalists across the globe. The vast majority of the world's economies combine some form of capitalism with socialist elements meaning that money is taken from wealthier citizens in order to redistribute it to the poor among us. The public school system, subsidized public transportation, libraries, as well as locally government-funded police, medical, and fire units are all examples of socialist reforms that are now built into the capitalist model. My own thoughts regarding capitalism can be summed up via a distortion of a Winston Churchill quote about government as I believe that capitalism is the worst form of economics, except for all the others. It is an economic model that separates us into winners and losers within the economic marketplace. Think of it as a game of chutes and ladders, but note that not everyone begins the game at the same starting point. Someone who begins on Space 72 is still susceptible to sliding all the way down to the beginning of the board. Think about what Elon Musk has done since acquiring Twitter, one of the most recognizable brands of the modern tech age. He bought the company for $44 billion, and in less than a year has reduced its worth to less than a third of what he paid for. He has driven away users, changed the name from a beloved cartoon bird to an X, which makes it look like I now have an app on my phone that would be unsuitable for youth. Amazingly, Elon was so close to the top of the capitalist board that his mistakes haven't yet sent him anywhere near the poorhouse. His gigantic ladder to the top of the board came from creating PayPal, whose technology has fueled the modern international banking system. I could be wealthier, Of course, spending all of my time podcasting likely hinders my accumulation of wealth. I could choose to work during the summers that I have off from teaching. I could pick up more hours, volunteer to coach more teams. Doing so would elevate me, but not enough to make a major difference in my life, merely moving me one further space on the board. And that is what leads to the modern-day critique of American-styled capitalism, Namely, that the ladders and slides are no longer evenly distributed. Sorting out winners and losers is fine, but we have to have an equal chance at becoming a winner. College has long been seen as the gateway to the American dream. Anybody who works hard enough can achieve the degree that will set them on the path to success. Yet college now costs so much that individuals on the lower third of the board often can't even afford to attend. If they use public or private assistance, they become saddled with debt that is nearly impossible to pay off. Anchors that prevent the player from ever reaching their full potential. On the other end of the spectrum are legacy admissions, trust funds, as well as a who-you-know society. These serve as backstops for those who have attended the most exclusive and expensive schools preventing the ultra-wealthy from sliding too far down the board. Capitalism thus appears broken to the individuals that understand all of this, as inequality becomes locked in and the American dream transforms into a nightmare of caste. As bad as it appears, however, the ills of the modern-day system of capitalism pale in comparison to history's most cautionary tale, that of the East India Company. This company, one of the first joint-stock ventures in history, had a private army that was twice the size of England's own. It governed colonial India from an office space just five windows wide. Millions died in order to boost the stock price for its shareholders, something that pure capitalists would likely still applaud today as good business practices. The lesson of the East India Company's malignant form of capitalism is worth visiting in the modern day, as corporations now run far too much of our lives. In their book, The Captured Economy, Brink Lindsay and Stephen Tellis document how these corporations capture public policy through shameless lobbying for laws that serve to only benefit themselves. Corporations have even won over public opinion on the issues, as comedian and activist Jon Stewart suggests when he asks, Why is it that if you take advantage of a tax break and you're a corporation, you're a smart businessman? But if you take advantage of something that you need to not be hungry, You're a moocher. Yanis Varoukis, the former finance minister of Greece, connects the modern concerns to the past, stating that the East India Company was no apparition, though. It was the template for many subsequent corporations. Liberals betray themselves the moment they turn a blind eye to this kind of hyper-concentrated power, This is why trading in apples does not even come close to trading in shares. Large quantities may produce, at worst, lots of bad cider. But large amounts of money invested in liquid shares can release demonic forces that no market or state can control. You're listening to Empires, Anarchy, and Other Notable Moments, a podcast designed for deep dives that assist in the teaching of history. This series focuses upon the East India Company. Episode number one, The Short History of Money. Nomadic hunter-gatherers had no money. They shared their goods and services through an economy of favors and obligations. Theirs was the original communal economy, one from which Karl Marx derived his economic model from. As we shifted to complex societies, individuals began to specialize in different fields. Doing so allowed us to become experts within our fields. This wasn't the game-changer that money needed to take over our lives, as the workforce of the world's oldest civilization, Summer, still consisted of 90% employed within the realm of food production. The remaining 10% worked on behalf of the society in order to be paid in food. A strict and rigid hierarchy of value hadn't yet been established, and their first attempt to do so was quite flawed as PBS informs us that the first currency ever used were cows. Cattle to be more specific, as sheep, goats, camels, and other livestock were all exchanged at different rates of value. Story Archaeology breaks down the complex system that Ireland used around 1400 BC, telling us that cattle could be exchanged to a value in set jewels ounce, usually of silver, or cumal, a female slave. Interestingly, that culture never used the measure and weight of a mug, or male slave, suggesting that the ancient Irish already saw infinite value in those who could produce. In each early civilization, the government took in the produce as tax revenue, but didn't keep it entirely to themselves. In fact, fast forward a few thousand years and realize that balancing the books in the ancient world had become the main determining factor if someone was a capable leader or not. Such was the case with Egyptian Queen Cleopatra, a woman who was able to successfully seduce the two most powerful men of her age. Of course, simplifying her power down to sex, does little to tell her complete story. In truth, it was Egypt's ability to produce money that made her so attractive to Julius Caesar and Mark Antony. Their Rome was a dream that was in a state of constant expansion, as it sought to prove to the world that only an empire could create wealth. Cleopatra, on the other hand, according to historian Stacy Skiff, believed that money was able to buy empires. Egypt was blessed by the Nile, which provided such fertile ground that one could literally toss seeds along its banks and expect to have a ripe harvest by the next season. Her nation's unique ability to fund the wars of Rome's expansion were behind the economic and political rise of prominent Romans. The fact that a woman was behind the rise of Rome must be a disturbing blow to all of the chauvinistic males that spent far too much time in 2023 thinking about the Roman Empire while on TikTok. The key to Cleopatra's staying power was that she convinced the world that no other leader, including any Roman, could extract the same amount of wealth from her people as she could. This resulted in the two most powerful Romans choosing to work with her, rather than against her. Money simplified relations between nations as well as the everyday folk. Harari writes that in a barter economy, every day the shoemaker and the apple grower will have to learn anew the relative prices of dozens of commodities. If 100 different commodities are traded in the market, then buyers and sellers will have to know 4,950 different exchange rates. And if 1,000 different commodities are traded, buyers and sellers must juggle 499,500 different exchange rates. Money drills through all of this and creates a numerical value system something that everyone on the planet can understand, as math is the only universal language among Earth's people. But what is money? And more importantly, why is it valuable? The ancients understood the value of a calf, a creature that would grow in value as it put on weight, but one that would lose value if you held on to it too long. The greenbacks in my wallet happened to just be paper, easily torn, written on, or disposed of. I, of course, wouldn't do that, as it would be an incredible waste. After all, that paper money can buy me far more sheets of paper with which to waste. Money is valuable because we all agree that it has value. It is an intersubjective reality that Harari notes exist solely in people's shared imaginations. Today, we don't even back our money with anything tangible, such as gold. The US ended that practice in 1971 in order to stave off inflation. On August 14th of that year, you could turn in all of your paper money and be assured of receiving gold from Fort Knox and other government depositories. The next day, you couldn't turn it in for anything. Did the sky fall? No. In fact, there was literally no difference because we had already come to assign a value to paper money. But there have been times when we didn't coalesce around one form of money. In the 15th century, many nations of the world utilized cowrie shells as their primary currency. In fact, the symbol for money in the ancient Chinese script is itself a depiction of a cowrie shell. The civilizations that inhabited West Africa were among the nations using the naturally produced currency, utilizing shells as well as copper, iron, and bright cloth. The area, home to the Gold Coast, fully understood the value of gold, but the material was only valuable to them because other nations placed value upon it. After all, the material wasn't strong enough to build anything useful, such as a plow. Europeans chasing the stories of Mansa Musa, the world's richest man, came calling for West African gold, but found something even more valuable. This, of course, were slaves, readily available within the already established Trans-Saharan slave markets. The Europeans soon exploited the Africans' currency choices, importing vast amounts of cowrie shells from the corners of their empires, which spanned the globe. They discovered the fabrics that interested Africans and mass-produced them, utilizing slave labor just offshore from the markets via African islands, which they had claimed through force of arms. Soon, they were purchasing vast amounts of slaves and gold for shells and shirts. In the 1800s, the world powers pulled the greatest switcheroo in history, consolidating beneath the gold standard Dictating to the rest of the world that gold was the only thing that truly counted as money. The Americans and Europeans had spent the previous three decades hoarding the substance. Africa had spent just as long sending it away from its shores for what now amounted to trinkets. Cloth and shells had been dumped upon the African markets. Devaluing those currencies. As time went on, the bright cloth lost its color and therefore its value. Africa was left with currency that suddenly everyone agreed no longer had value. It was as though the cool kids got together in the middle of the game and changed the rules to their favor. In the first half of the exercise, they had convinced their opponents to eagerly give away vast quantities of gold which was now the universally agreed-upon definition of money, as well as a large portion of their workforce. Those laborers were then forcibly put to work in the Americas, mass-producing cash crops such as cotton and sugarcane, the trade of which lined the pockets of Europeans as the West's access to cheap labor enabled the production of each, resulting in an explosion of wealth. Economies have only grown more complex. Ferrari notes that even today, coins and banknotes are a rare form of money. The sum total of money in the world is about 60 trillion. Yet the sum total of coins and banknotes is less than 6 trillion. More than 90% of all money, more than 50 trillion appearing in our accounts, exists only on a computer screen. If everyone today were to go to their bank and withdraw their money, they would be met with the largest banking collapse in global history, as no institution in the world holds on to the money that you give them. Instead, they loan it out in exchange for interest, something that the Catholic Church for a few centuries outlawed due to its teachings regarding the sins of usury. Rather than end the practice, It monopolized banks among the Jewish citizens of Europe, resulting in some of the harshest stereotypes to have ever attached themselves to the Jewish people, namely that they are almost all rich and greedy. Christians would take out loans from time to time that they were unable to pay. When that happens, it's natural to be upset at the bankers who won't loan you the money that you believe will help you dig yourself out of the hole that you're in. Not every bank is successful, but that isn't going to be something that they will tell you. Instead, they all project an air of invincibility as you want to belong to a profitable bank. These banks are utilizing money for the sole purpose of making money. And that's okay. After all, the more money that they make, the more buffer they have against external negative shocks. In reality, the vast majority of banks are teetering on the brink of ruin at any given moment, as banks are allowed to lend $10 for every dollar they actually possess, which means that 90% of all the money in our bank accounts is not covered by actual coins and notes. The image of confidence put on by the lenders falls afoul of American entertainer Will Rogers' thoughts when he proclaimed that too many people spend money they haven't earned to buy things they don't want, to impress people that they don't like. These needs seem to spiral ever larger with each passing year. Yet Harari goes on to note that for most of history the economy stayed much the same size. Yes, global production increased, but this was due mostly to demographic expansion and the settlement of new lands. Per capita production remained static, but that all changed in the modern age. In 1500, global production of goods and services was equal to about 250 billion. Today it hovers around 60 trillion. Growth is the singular focus guiding the hands that steer the economies of the world. Again, that isn't necessarily a bad thing. Without growth, economic gains have to come from someone else's piece of the pie. But if the pie continually gets larger, one can take and consume more without feeling as though they are harming somebody else. In other words, I can get wealthy without you getting poorer. that thought runs counter to the socialist elements that have embedded themselves into modern-day capitalist nations such as France, England, and Canada. In each of these systems, high taxes on the wealthy redistribute non-monetary gains for the rest of the population, such as relatively free universal health care. By taking that cost away from the lower and middle classes, those groups have more money to spend on other things they want. It isn't just because of the goodness of their hearts, however, as the lower and middle classes are far better at spending their money on tangible things that drive the modern consumer economies. That was driven home to me when George W. Bush pushed patriotic consumerism in the wake of the 9-11 attacks, which ushered in a nationwide recession. Vox reminds us that, in an address to the nation on the evening of the 9-11 attacks, President George W. Bush reassured the public that our financial institutions remained strong and the American economy was still open for business. He would go on to tell people to get down to Disney World in Florida to help shore up the country's hurting airlines. Vice President Dick Cheney called for the public to stick their thumb in the eye of the terrorists by not letting what had happened in any way throw off their normal level of activity. Political leaders declared that the terrorists hate our freedoms, of speech, of religion, and apparently of the ability to snap a picture with Minnie and Mickey and buy stock and Exxon. That is how important maintaining upward trajectories of growth are to those who hold the reins of power. But growth isn't continuous, and the mass expansion of the economy has resulted in a number of large bubbles, moments where goods receive inflated values of gigantic proportions before bursting. Bubbles can happen within real estate, banking, or even Beanie Babies. Joining the bubbles is a great way to enrich oneself, but the key is knowing when to jump out of the bubble towards safety. I missed both the rise and fall of the beanie bubble, but still found myself in possession of quite a bit of those cute critters upon marrying my wife, who confessed that she was sure at one point that her teenage beanie baby purchases would allow her to retire at least a decade or two early. Like a good investor, she kept them in mint condition, never even daring to give them a hug. She was too young to understand the collapse of the market, or the fact that there was a market at all. But when the bubble is the entire housing industry, the biggest financial gain is realized by the person who holds out the longest, meaning that the rewards come to those who wait until precisely the exact last moment before the burst happens. Thus, an entire industry has risen up around speculating about the fate of corporations. In January of 2021, Wall Street investors were betting against the company GameStop, which primarily sells video games and their merchandise. The subreddit group r slash Bets decided to get involved and began to purchase up the stock of the dying company for as low as $3 a share. Investment firms initially saw the rise in stock prices all the way up to $19 and proceeded to short the stock which is essentially a bet that the price would lower to the point that the company went out of business. It was here that the craziness began, as small investors flooded the market with demand, raising the price of the stock to an astonishing $347. While that doesn't sound a lot, keep in mind that it was a $343 profit in 10 days if you bought your share when it was only $3. Not only did the little guy make out like a bandit, but the Wall Street firms who had bet incorrectly lost $6 billion in the episode. Netflix even made a film about it titled Eat the Rich, the GameStop saga. The interesting thing that that episode shows us is that this moment of great gains for some and disastrous losses for others wasn't a fatal design flaw within capitalism. Rather, it worked exactly as it was designed. The combination of economic growth, credit, and speculation all came together to form the stock market, which is itself a shared illusion of economic activity. Stocks have value because we agree that they have value, much like we, for a few years at least, agreed that cryptocurrency and NFTs had real value. That stock goes up as the value of the company rises, and it falls as the company falters. One of the factors that are included in all of this, however, is confidence. Joint stock companies began to form during the age of discovery, as European expeditions were far too expensive for anyone to individually afford. That is why Christopher Columbus begged multiple monarchs for the three ships needed to cross the Atlantic. It is also why Ferdinand Magellan, after being refused by the King of Portugal, had to turn to the King of Spain in order to fund his adventure around the world. Juan Sebastian Elcano finished that route, delivering more than fifty tons worth of spices to the throne of Spain. While Elcano got a shiny new coat of arms, a government pension, And a new house, the vast majority of the profits went to the King of Spain. Within a year, Elcano was dead, unable to enjoy the spoils of his historic voyage. Wanting a piece of the pie themselves, well off individuals banded together within these joint stock companies in order to pool together their wealth in order to limit their financial risk to a failed expedition meaning that I could buy 10% of the company's stock in order to share in 10% of the profits. If a squall, cannibal attack, or mutiny resulted in a game over for the expedition, then at least you weren't on the hook for the entire price of it. Rather than backroom dealings and subreddits, this original outsourcing of money was quite public, as they were conducted in coffee houses, two of which stand out in particular. Jonathan's coffee house in London had always been a hot spot for those who plotted to rule the world. After all, it was there that several patrons were implicated in a plot to assassinate William III. Two years later, in 1698, it was the scene of an economic global takeover as John Castingly began to post the prices of stocks and commodities for sale. Today, the location continues to be home to the London Stock Exchange. Similarly, the New York Stock Exchange is built upon the land of Tontine Coffee House, where in 1792 a group of traders met to create rules and regulations to govern the selling and buying of stocks. It was within these two centers that the West grabbed a hold of the global economy and never let go as whoever sets the rules to the game will always grant themselves the largest advantage. The two drugs have been intertwined ever since, with The Atlantic claiming that coffee is capitalism's favorite drug. There is proof of that, as journalist Michael Pollan notes that capitalism and caffeine are hand in hand. If you want any proof of that, Just look at the institution of the coffee break. Your employer not only gives you a free drug at the workplace, but gives you a place and time in which to enjoy it twice a day in most places. Why would employers do that if it didn't offer them more benefit than cost? The skepticism is deserved, as capitalists are wired to expect some sort of economic benefit out of any and all actions. Interestingly, the coffee break went all the way up to the Supreme Court in the 1955 case of the U.S. versus Granettes. The website Easter describes this little-known case for us, detailing that Granettes owned the Denver Tie Factory Los Wigwam Weavers, and after World War II, struggled to find staff up for the surprisingly arduous task of tie-making. To encourage productivity, he introduced mandatory coffee breaks, so that workers would have the energy to make it through the shifts fully alert. One problem, though, like bad bosses throughout history, Grinetz didn't want to pay his employees for the time he demanded they spend drinking coffee. Eventually, the U.S. Department of Labor became involved, with the court ultimately deciding in a rare win for the working person that employers had to cover coffee breaks since the business was positively affected by employees being jacked up on caffeine. Confidence in one hand and coffee in the other. The men that primarily made up the customers at Jonathan's Coffee House decided to take on the world in their never-ending search for profit. It soon became normal for a joint-stock company to run a colony The first joint stock company in America, the Virginian Company of London, was tasked with producing a profit in Jamestown. France's Mississippi Company founded New Orleans, and the Dutch West India Company settled both New Jersey and New York. In each instance, the company was empowered to recruit armies, establish political institutions, and set taxes. But above all, they were to deliver a profit to their shareholders sitting back at Jonathan's Coffee House, sipping their morning latte. How that profit came about didn't matter to them, as the only skin that they had in the game was financial. If millions of people in some far-off land starved to death so that the stock rose half a point, then so be it. It was with all of this in mind that the East India Company was established. Like all gamblers, the initial investors didn't think about the companies that had previously failed, but instead focused on those that had succeeded, particularly the Dutch Company of Distant Lands, which had been founded in 1594. That venture had returned from Indonesia with 800 tons of pepper, 200 tons of cloves, as well as large quantities of cinnamon and nutmeg. Historian William Dalrymple notes that the voyage made an unprecedented 400% profit. One of the reasons that capitalism and casinos are so resilient is our inability to ever be satisfied. Those that lose want to get back up on their feet in the hope that the next time it would be different. And those that have won big will continue to come back chasing their previous success. Greedy to hit the jackpot again, the Dutch turned to England in order to buy up more ships and supplies to fund the next journey. That spooked England, who also sought the riches afforded by the spice trade, and on December 31, 1600, 218 investors received a royal charter to form the British East India Company. Dalrymple writes, that it turned out to offer far wider powers than the petitioners had perhaps expected or even hoped for. As well as freedom from all custom duties for their first six voyages, it gave them a British monopoly for 15 years over trade to the East Indies, a vaguely defined area that was soon taken to encompass all trade and traffic between the Cape of Good Hope and the Strait of Magellan. As well as granting semi sovereign privileges to rule territories and raise armies. The wording was sufficiently ambiguous to allow future generations of EIC officials to use it to claim jurisdiction over all English subjects in Asia, mint money, raise fortifications, make laws, wage war, conduct an independent foreign policy, hold courts, issue punishment. Imprison English subjects and plant English settlements. The company's flagship was a massive 900 ton vessel known as the Scourge of Malice. That incredible name was said to have been thought up by Queen Elizabeth I, and as such was an infamous ship designed and known for raiding Spanish shipping throughout the Caribbean. Its name was soon changed to the Red Dragon, something that I find to be slightly less menacing. It set sail for the East India Company on February 13, 1601, along with three smaller escorts. Investors likely had to immediately reach for their antacid, as there wasn't enough wind to push the behemoth of a ship out of the Thames estuary for two months. And it wasn't like it was stuck at the dock, but rather the former scourge of malice humiliatingly stood on moving in the channel with an eyesight of the city of Dover. It isn't how you start, but how you finish, and the rest of the journey ends up being quite profitable as the Red Dragon returned on June 6, 1602. In its cargo holds were 900 tons of pepper, cinnamon, and cloves. The take turned into a 300% profit for the shareholders that had banded together to form the company. To these shareholders, it mattered little that most of the cargo had come from an illegally plundered Portuguese carrack. To them, like most capitalists, profit was profit, and piracy, which is such a sinister term, became known as a corporate takeover. Fifteen more voyages were successfully made over the next 15 years. Yet still the company, and subsequently England, remained far behind the Dutch, whose deep government pockets were funding far more excursions into Asia. Part of the problem was that English investors saw the cheap land of the New World as a far safer investment that provided a more lucrative return. Thus, the EIC raised £68,373 as opposed to the £550,000 that were used to fund the Dutch excursions. You wouldn't choose wrong if you chose to purchase 100 fertile acres of Virginia for 10 shillings rather than 10 shares of East India stock for £120. But there was a divide for who invested in which opportunity. Interestingly enough, It was the nobility, the gentlemen of England, who decided to make their fortunes by investing in American land, which left the EIC selling its shares to former residents of Newgate Prison, as well as the Bedlam Lunatic Asylum. These turned out to be the exact type of investors needed to prop up the risky venture. As the competition turned violent, with the company finding itself caught in the middle of the fighting between the Dutch and the English. Again, the Dutch were the ones who got the better of the situation, forcing the EIC to initially turn away from the spice trade altogether. The defining moment was the Amboyna Massacre. Captured in two wood cuttings and a dozen pamphlets published under the title A true relation of the unjust, cruel, and barbarous proceedings against the English, the massacre involved ten English merchants belonging to the EIC being waterboarded, placed on the rack, as well as having their limbs blown off with gunpowder. Eventually, the ten merchants and eleven others were burned alive by the Dutch East India Company. Still, a joint-stock corporation can't just dissolve due to a setback. Even though the original investors would have long ago made a massive profit off of the company's early success, there would have been new investors demanding that they get the same from their money. Thus, the company pivoted away from the spice trade, this time focusing on cornering the less competitive markets of cotton, textiles, and indigo. Dalrymple points out that the source for all three of these luxuries was India. We'll examine their landing and conquering of the subcontinent by the East India Company in our next episode. I hope you enjoyed today's episode. If you want to interact with the show, you can email us at resourcesbylowery at gmail.com. If you would like to financially support the show, please look in the show description for more information. As always, thank you for listening, rating the show, and spreading the word.